Welcome to Saltier Politics. Today we have quite a show for you with uh, actually your good friend, Julie. Yes, my good friend Sungmin Kim of the Washington Post, um, who's also a CNN political analyst. She just got back from Paris where she covered the president. We did not get into whether the president's coif is um, irretrievably harmed by rain, but we did get into Paris traffic and also a bunch of other really interesting topics from, from Nancy Pelosi's um, bid for speaker to Robert Mueller, um, to Sungman's love of obscure Virginia-based beer. Um, well, she actually, I, I had something for you, Julie. I was wondering, because she talked about how big Twitter is now in her profession, having to watch Trump's tweets and having been a communications director. Like, what, if you had to put yourself back in that position now with Twitter and all of that? Well, so <laughs> this is how old I am, and this is so depressing. When I was communications director, we used to actually fax out. <laughs> Um, our, our press releases. So by the time they reached their destination, it was the next day for the most part. Not really, but it, but it took a while. Um, look, I think social media has tremendously changed the landscape for everybody and no more than for the presidency of the United States. Um, I, I don't really think I even followed um, Barack Obama's Twitter when he was president because he never really made any news on Twitter. Um, and here you have Donald Trump making news every day. And, and one of the things that she brought up, as, as people will hear, is that this is something that journalists and also other members of Congress have to really focus on because a lot of times he will make news. It's really not, quote unquote, Twitter official, I guess, right, until Donald Trump tweets it out. It's really an insane way of, of making personal decisions and hiring and firing announcements, but I guess that's the world we're living in. And this is what you can expect in the upcoming conversation. <laughs> yes. So coming up next, Simon Kin with The Washington Post. Hi, everybody. We're here with Sung Min Kim, a Washington Post reporter covering the Trump administration with a lens on Capitol Hill and also a newly minted CNN political analyst. Sung Min, thank you so much for joining us. Great to see you and hear you. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start with this. You just got back from Paris. How bad was the weather? Was it really that awful? I know there's a, uh, there's a lot of controversy over the president's decision to skip one of the visits to the memorials when he was in Paris over the weekend. But the one thing I can confirm, and the one thing that was not disputed, is that it was raining in Paris that day. <laughs> I was looking outside my window. It's a, it was foggy. It was rainy. Um, but other, obviously, you've seen a lot of the a lot of the controversy and a lot of the firestorm that he's come under for skipping that for skipping the first of the two cemetery visits uh, over the weekend. And I thought it was interesting how on the second visit on this la on, the, on his last day there, um, he made it almost a point to um, make sure he was standing because it also rained on Sunday to make sure that he was standing out in the rain delivering a speech and without an umbrella. <laughs> so uh, you know his defenders would say that the Secret Service wouldn't let him fly in a helicopter and that's the reason he skipped going and he didn't want to tie up Paris traffic, which anybody who's been to Paris knows is virtually impossible to do because Paris traffic is always tied up. So <laughs> is that, can you shed some light on that or is that something that his defenders are saying just because they're saying it? It's unclear. I mean, I think other people who have who have more experience in this arena have pointed out that there should always be a rain option that's doable. I mean, you saw a lot of uh, former folks from the Obama administration's 
administration say, look, you know, maybe the helicopter reason helicopter reason is, is legit, but that's why you always have a backup rain option. Now, I believe um, it's about uh, that, that the, the cemetery that he skipped was about an hour or so outside of Paris. But if you're the president of the United States and can clear out, uh, clear out the traffic and create your own motorcade, you can probably get there a lot faster. Obviously, you may not want to do that and make the traffic worse uh, in Paris than it already is. And I can tell you the traffic, it was absolutely horrendous in Paris saw, over the weekend. I saw um, on Twitter that you had to escape and pull your suitcase out from the car. I think I was following basically. that. That was actually hilarious. So what happened was that, so I did the Google Maps thing. I had to switch hotels on Saturday night because I was staying at the press hotel designated for the White House press corps. But I had to, since I was with uh, the president's protective pool on Sunday, I had to move over to the pool hotel, which is a lot closer to where uh, Trump was staying. My Google Maps tells me it's about three and a half miles, about a 30-minute drive. So I was like, all right, great you know, hop into a cab. And I just noticed after an hour and a half of just kind of going and stopping and going and stopping, we're not quite there yet. So I finally figured out that it would be at least another 45 minutes in the car because of the traffic. And then if I could get out and walk, it'd be about 19 minutes back to the hotel. Of course, the first footbridge that I found or to to get me over to the other other side of the Seine River was blocked off. So I was just dragging my suitcase like a crazy mad woman all over Paris. But I eventually did make it about two hours after I started. See, if you can, you womaned up, I think the president could have. But I would also <laughs> like your opinion on, we saw the whole relationship between Trump and Macron. What, what What's your favorite presidential bromance? <laughs> but it kind of has to be um it kind of has to be Macron and Trump, right? I mean we go from they've they've had this very bizarre almost touchy-feely relationship and I think the, one of the funnier moments is that uh what the last time Macron visited the United States and visited the White House you know the President Trump was like picking off like pieces of lint off Macron's suit and saying he's perfect we have to keep him perfect we have to make sure he's perfect um but contrast that with the very awkward body language that we saw um in Paris over the weekend I mean you know first of all literally three minutes after Air Force One lands in Paris, Trump fires off a tweet attacking Macron for comments that he gave about this, quote, true European army, which also took very much out of context what Macron himself says. So that was pro problem, you know, that's problem number one. Problem number two is you're just attacking your host as you as you land on as you land on their soil. But you just watch the watch the meeting with the two, you know, former bromance folks. Like you just, he's you know, Trump's sitting on the edge of his chair. He doesn't look very happy. Um, he just kinda has this tight smile. Macron is patting him on the thigh and trying to be like, Oh, we're all friends, but it clearly it was a much more tense moment uh, there in Paris than we saw here in Washington a few months ago. Yeah, and what's interesting to me, Sung Min, is that, uh, first of all, the president goes full-on fish called Wanda and basically paraphrases Michael Palin from Monty Python saying, if it wasn't for us, you'd all be singing Deutschland, Deutschland, Liberalis in France, which I thought was a little, a little interesting for the leader of the free world to say about an ally. But secondly... Um, let's talk a little bit about that, because Macron really did something he hasn't done in the past. Um, he did, in front of the president and to the president's face, um, give a very stinging rebuke of nationalism versus patriotism and really kind of took on Trumpism. But at the same time, I thought it was interesting that there seems to be a shift. I don't know if you could speak to this. There seems to be a shift 
among some of our closest allies. Yeah, and I think that was so remarkable about Macron's speech um, under this grand Arc de Triomphe, celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the end of World War One. that he did seem to level these words that were very critical of Trump's worldview. I mean, Trump, a lot of his successes in the presidential campaign, um, both uh, you know, the presidential campaign was that, was that he has this philosophy both, you know, domestically and on the international stage of America first, and that's what's so important. Um, and you and, and that's the philosophy that he's, like, stuck to for so long, and we saw that really, and I mean, we're, we saw that um, in full display uh, when we were in Paris over the weekend, but also we saw that in this big Europe trip over the summer, which I also was on, and he really upended the proceedings at the annual NATO conference when he, th- you know, he made these comments comments that a lot of diplomats had interpreted as a potential threat to withdraw from NATO um, with his demands for more defense spending from the NATO from the NATO countries. And it's just this is something that he's comfortable doing to kind of make sure to project this, you know, America first image. I mean, we've you know, when when the president landed back in Paris or back in Washington from Paris, the the press did try to ask him his response to the Macron speech when and his rebuke of nationalism. Um, He didn't respond. And I don't think he's commented on that sense. But clearly, um, this it was Macron's speech seemed to be designed to strike a nerve with the president in kind of a subtle way. Yeah, you know, what's interesting to me is it seems that he was talking, uh, going back to what you said about this European army, which the president took as a slight, um, I thought this was really Macron's way of saying, you want us to spend more money on our defense, you want us to contribute more to NATO, and you're right, and we should take on ownership of our defense a little bit more, and maybe we should talk about a unified, Democ- uh, unified excuse me, um, European army, but it also seemed to be a rebuke to the United States saying we can no longer rely on the United States as part of NATO to have our backs. Did you take it that way or did you think there was nothing, well, something more to it? I think that's the right interpretation of it because obviously um, the, 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 a lot of Macron's words got lost in translation and, and I will admit that a, lo- a lot of the earlier press coverage of his initial remarks did seem to take some of his comments out of context. But if you look at our, you know, our intrepid Paris correspondent for the Washington Post, you know, diligently transcribed those or translated those remarks for us. And if you look at what Macron's saying, it's trying to ally himself with essentially what Trump is saying. Look, like we don't want to have to like the United States shouldn't have to like do all this work. So this, quote, true European army should be put together to um, to make sure that us in Europe can defend ourselves. Um, And I think when he singled out China, Russia, and potentially the United States, he was referring more to potential cybersecurity threats. It came in a different part of the interview. Um, So that's why, but but somehow in the president's head, those words got all mashed up together and um, and created this tension that we saw literally moments after he landed in Paris. I have a question for you. How, how do you feel that journalism has changed? Because you've had quite a long career and worked at a lot of great places, but how do you feel now when you just really state the facts and kind of fact check the president or the administration that you're sometimes looked at as biased when in fact you're just saying a fact? How has it changed for you and kind of what are your tactics as you go in? I think what I say is that, I mean, clearly we have a president that has taken a very adversarial view with the press, and you can see that proceeding in a courtroom this week when CNN has 
sued the administration, sued the White House to uh, to return uh, Jim Acosta's credentials back. And virtually every major news outlet here has backed him up on that, including the Washington Post, um, in terms of backing up CNN on making sure that he can get his credentials back, because we strongly believe that this is a major uh, threat on the First Amendment and violates, um, you know, CNN's First Amendment rights. With that said, I think what it what if if anything that I've changed, it's making sure. Uh, well, first, making sure even more than I already did that everything that we report, whether it's the smallest fact or um, a major scoop that we have to make sure is bulletproof, that we go even further than we and than we have ever done before to make sure that our reporting is as bulletproof as, as it is possible. Because I think previously, um, before this, before kind of the rise of the, you know, the fake news criticisms began, um, I just... Um, Obviously, you would get criticized if you got something wrong, but for whatever reason, and I, and I honestly like do get this from both, um, you know, both sides that people think that people think that if you get something wrong, like you, there's much less um, a benefit of the doubt to reporters that it was an honest mistake, that it was that it's, that's actually you got this wrong, fact wrong because of an agenda. And I can say that when we get things wrong, it's just like clearly an error either our sources were wrong or we didn't vet it fully enough like i think i speak for virtually all journalists say we don't have an agenda when we you know make when we report wrong facts they're just wrong that we they're just wrong facts that we got at the time you know it's interesting it's interesting you say that segment because you and i and i'm just remembering this as you're as you're talking about this you and i were on a panel i want to say seven eight years ago i can't remember how long ago it was it was up at yale it was the women's campaign school up at yale and i had you on um on this panel as uh, i think you were at politico at the time but as a reporter who really was not working for a partisan news outlet um and you never have and uh we had. I remember somebody asked uh, a person who was listening to this panel asked the question of, "Do you think the press is biased?" And I, both you and I and the other um, journalist on the panel said there are some biased media outlets, but a lot of the quote unquote mainstream media, whether it's the Politico where you were at the time or the New York Times or the Washington Post, really has reporters who just try to really write it as they see it down the middle and, and doesn't have a don't have a bias. We were basically laughed out of there by saying that yeah. by by people on both sides of the aisle. This was not by any means limited to to any one particular political viewpoint. And I think at the time I was certainly surprised at that reaction. Today I wouldn't be as surprised at that reaction. I think most people believe that the media is incredibly biased, either pro or con. I think that's fair. And look, you know, kind of amending my observations from, you know, seven or eight or nine years ago, there's been surveys, um, anonymous surveys of journalists. And if they relay their, um, you know, when they get asked their political preferences, and if you look at these surveys, and I haven't participated in any one of them, but they do look journalists lean liberal. And I think it's fair to point out that observation. But I also do think that most professional journalists are able to put their personal beliefs aside um, to report out um, all sides of a controversy, particularly on controversial issues. And I get asked this question pretty regularly. And I I say a couple of things. Well, first of all, the only thing I wanted to be as a reporter uh, or only thing I wanted to be in life was a reporter. And that was since I was 12 years old. So I've just never, like, whatever cause I want to push it to the extent like on like any sort of issue 
I feel so much more. And people ask me, like, well, what do you think about this tax cut? Or what do you think about this immigration speech? Or, like, what did you think of Brett Kavanaugh? You must have personal feelings on all this. Oh, like, sure. But I, like, for me personally, what is the most important beyond, like, Washington doing something or not doing something is making sure that I can get out the most fair, the most accurate, and the and the most prompt information about an issue or a controversy out there for the readers. Like, I feel, this is so cheesy, but I feel really passionate about that. And that supersedes any personal feelings or agenda that I may have. Well, um, and, and I'll say this. I've known you for a really long time. We're good friends. I was at your wedding. You were at my baby shower. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, we've known each other a super long time, back when you were an intern in Somerset County, New Jersey, for the Star-Ledger. I mean, this uh, is good like... Good times. Good times. <laughs> great times, as I recall. You particularly had great times. But... Um, and I've never, as close as we are, I actually don't think I've ever heard you voice a political opinion, even in private, which um, is rare. But I think people should know that. Um, let me let me move on quickly, <laughs> if you don't mind, to um, the Democratic side. What in God's name is going on with Nancy Pelosi? It's fascinating. I mean, it's the you know they just won a massive victory last Tuesday. This is the biggest Democratic class since Watergate. There's a lot of new energy in the caucus. They have this massive power to be a check on Donald Trump, um, and not even just with the impeachment word, but just oversight, subpoenas, investigations, and some leverage on legislation, too. So it's fascinating to see that their first order of everything is infighting. Um, and you're seeing Nancy Pelosi and issues with her getting to the necessary votes to to, um, to be speaker again. I mean, there's there's new problems popping up every day. I mean, the latest problem today is that Marsha Fudge, who's a former, she's very respected, she's the former chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, she's, you know, openly floating a challenge to Nancy Pelosi. Um, and and they just, I think people on Capitol Hill feel that Nancy Pelosi, who is the best vote counter on Capitol Hill, Barton, and knows where her caucus is and knows where her mem- what her members need to vote for, you know, almost essentially virtually anything, people here still seem confident that she will prevail as speaker, probably very narrowly, but we don't know how she's going to get there at this point. Um, and a lot of, and it's fast, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of her allies are openly leaning into the gender argument because, look, you know, all, with all the seats that the Democrats picked up, there were more than 23 women, with 23 being the seats that um, Democrats needed to take back the majority. There were more than 23 women who carried uh, the House Democrats to victory. So to, you know, to kind of turn around and try to oust the first woman speaker from reclaiming your gavel it has been an incredible optic to watch. Um, but I think the betting, again, like here on Capitol Hill, is that she does still uh, prevail as speaker because because if she doesn't, we don't know who else can get the votes um, and who else has the and not only who can get the votes, but someone who else has that legislative expertise and the leadership experience and the negotiating experience to be able to push back against Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, which is kind of the leader that House Democrats need right now. So when you go into interviews, uh, you may personally like somebody, but what has been a difficult story you've had to break or report on that a person that kind of puts a person in a not so flattering light? How do you tread on that line? That's a good question. Um, I think 
been generally, um, I mean, it's hard to think of examples right now, but I think what I've tried to do, um, and my sources can say whether I've been bad at this or good at this, is always to be straightforward. So if I'm writing, for example, a profile on someone, but it's going to be critical because the person has been in the news for maybe like a not so great reason, or if there's criticism being floated about him or her, um, I will be very straightforward with um, how the story, you know, the reporting that we've gotten and how the story is being shaped um, at this moment. Um, there's this kind of, it, it's kind of a gruesome philosophy, but you just, as a reporter, you always want to stab people from the front and not from the back. <laughs> so just to be as upfront as you can with the kind of story um, that that you want to present that you think is fair. Um, if it's tough on a person, you just really want to, you just really want to say, well, this is what we have. This is what we have from like three people who have told us this. I think we you know, please, before we publish, like, let us know your side. Otherwise the story is not, you know, not well-rounded, but I think just to be, I just, I've always remembered just to be as upfront and straightforward. Cause I think even, even, and Julie can uh, weigh in on with her view of things, but I think that, that um, people on the other side feel that is much more helpful than just surprising. I mean, I've heard from a lot of sources over the years that the thing that they hate the most from, especially from stories, is a, is, is a surprise. Um, they would much obviously rather know about it beforehand, and they're much, even if the story is tough, they're much more appreciative reporters who have let them know in advance this is what the story is going to be rather than just, you know, you know, dumping a surprise on them when the story is published. Yeah, there's, there's nothing worse for um, a, a Senate <laughs> staffer, and I can, t I can vouch for this, having been one a long time ago, than to walk into your principal's office, into the senator's office, and say, I had no idea the story was coming, and whoops, it's really awful, and how do we clean this up, rather than knowing a few days in advance that it's coming. So I agree. Um, let's do uh, Two Truths and a Lie because you have some good ones. Um, so this is a game we play every week on the podcast, and it actually helps people really get to know our guests much better. So why don't you give us, in no, in no particular order, um, three things about you, and we will guess the one that is false. So my three things is that, well, first of all, okay, so I'll, I'll list them off. It is um, that my the second language I ever learned was Japanese, um, keep in mind that I'm Korean, so that helps a little bit. Um, uh, my favorite travel, travel memory is going backpacking around Europe in college, uh, and I've played the national anthem at an MLB game. So which one is the lie? I think I, I, think I know the answer to this, because I know you really well, so I'm going to let Emily go first. You, Japanese was your second language. I'm going to say that you never went backpacking around Europe in college. So Julie is correct. I knew I it. I knew it. Backpacking. <laughs> I've been to, I think the first time I was in Europe was uh, when I was in high school for an orchestra tour because I'm a total dork, <laughs> um, but I never did the backpacking thing. I would love to. Sounds fun. Um, but yeah, so what I, I played, I was part of a youth orchestra that played the national anthem at a White Sox game. You are um, a dork. When I was, That's cool. <laughs> I am the total dork <laughs> when I was in ninth grade. And yes, I grew up in, I spent uh, four years of my younger years in Tokyo. So that was, Japanese was the second language I learned. That's actually really cool. Do you still speak Japanese? I don't know this. 
I don't. I think it's just kind of disappeared because it's hard for a young kid to probably have three languages in their head. So yeah. I think I had to push Japanese out at some point. My mom tells me that if I've ever spent an extended time in Tokyo or elsewhere in Japan, it may come back out. It's just hiding in my brain somewhere. But for now, it's hiding. You know what? You also, if you were here in New York, which is so much cooler than D.C., but you and I have had that debate for many years now, yes. um, <laughs> we would be serving you your favorite alcohol, which turns out to be the Love Beer from Star Hill Brewery. What, what? the hell is that? So Star Hill Brewery is a brewery out in Charlottesville, Virginia, about three hours south of um, D.C. It's where University of Virginia is. And it's just a very, very delicious beer. And I think I kind of want one right now. What's delicious it's about a long it? Week. Really? It's, just, it's like a wheat beer, but it's like a little bit different. I like wheat beers. And it's just, it just like there's just something really good about it. And I think, and I think also the first time I drank it, I was on a great um, road trip with my, well, then um, – boyfriend now husband so we just always have really great memories of that trip to charlottesville so i think that's also why i like the beer as well tell us about the weird knuckle i never knew about the knuckle so i also in addition to playing violin i played volleyball in junior high and high school um and which would surprise others because i am not that tall i'm about five five clearly i was not a front row spiker blocker um, but i did play defense in the back row and i played uh, i played on a club team and saw saw more year of high school so and there was you know there's one day at practice there was a ball that was dropping maybe about 10 15 feet in front of me I like dove um, to try to like save it I should have what I should have done is just to put my uh, put my right hand in a fist to try to bump it back up but I didn't I had my hands open which means my pinky snapped back I broke it my mom who always hated me playing violin or playing volleyball but loved me playing the violin was furious because I couldn't play the violin for six weeks um, but it didn't grow back all too correctly so it looks like now my knuckle is missing I've never noticed that that's pretty gross yeah I'll show you the next time it's pretty freaky that is freaky maybe you could tweet it out after people listen to this so we could all we could all take a look at it and let us know I know right well so you played violin for a while my my mom put me in piano for a decade and said you know there'll be that one time you're going to be at a party and can play piano and you'll just be the bell of the ball the same thing has that ever happened to you I was going to ask you has that ever happened to you because I I was at a camp weekend and there were four people there but I don't think that is considered a party how about did that happen with you (laughs) Uh, so that's the reason my mom wanted me to play both uh, piano and violin because she was always telling me there's going to be that one moment, whether it's at church or at a party, where they're going to need a pianist and you can, you know, you know, go in with your piano skills. I quit after six months because when you're a young kid, it's hard to play two instruments. So I continue the violin. Um, but I don't, I mean, as much as I loved it growing up, I don't play violin too much anymore. Um, but I'm always obviously have all the happy memories um, uh, playing, you know, making my mom happy. So my parents made me take, this is totally off topic, but my parents made me take piano lessons for years. And I have these really freakishly stubby fingers. So I, my hands <laughs> my hands never got big enough to do an octave. So I never was oh able to. Oh my gosh. Isn't that? Are, they're tiny. They're tiny. No, tiny. I mean, literally I have like toes in my fingers. They're disgustingly. My, my, my six-year-old son <laughs> makes fun of me because my thumb is smaller than his and I'm not kidding. Um, so I could never play, never play the piano. So that was many, many, many dollars wasted on behalf of my poor Russian parents who of course, (laughs) as I'm sure your Korean mother does, of course you're expected to play an instrument and not just play it, but play kind of like a prodigy. Um, what do you, what's the presidential field shaping up to look like? What do you think? 
Well, it looks like everybody from the Senate Democratic Caucus is thinking about running. Um, I do find it funny that once these uh, senators got successfully through their 2018 re-election campaigns, literally the day after, you have other folks, uh, people saying they are openly entertaining running for president. The latest in the batch is Senator Bob Casey, who was just re-elected in Pennsylvania um, for a six-year term but he uh, last week, but he did tell a local station um, where he told NBC that he is, he hasn't ruled it out, he's considering it. So in the Senate alone, you're going to have at least a dozen people or so um, who are actively considering running. Um, and that doesn't even include the governors, the mayors, other um, Democratic Party officials who may be considering yet. So if you thought the 17-member field and the Republican Party and with the undercard debate was kind of a disaster, I would just, you know, brace yourself for the next couple of years in the Democratic Party. What do we think about Sherrod Brown? You think he's kind of flirting with it or you think he's... So I think, well, I've had this conversation with my journalist friends for a while in terms of that Democratic candidate who can really strike the balance between the Trump voters and also but make the progressive happy. And I think of I mean, and my per, my perspective is limited pretty much to the Senate because I haven't spent extensive time with mayors or with governors. So obviously I'm working from a limited uh, viewpoint here. But, you know, Sherrod Brown does seem to hit kind of both constituencies, um, and he was resoundingly reelected in Ohio, um, clearly has a strong hold on the progressive base, but can reach out to these Trump voters that, you know, voted surprisingly for him in 2016 and handed all these key rust belts to, uh, to Trump over Hillary Clinton. Um, he now seems to be considering it and, like, taking meetings on it. Um, but it, so it remains to be seen um, as if he'll actually run. Obviously, he was uh, talked about for a vice presidential uh, candidate to Hillary or to be uh, Hillary's VP nominee. Um, but we'll just have to see. And it's, it's I can. The Democratic Party in the direction um, will we'll know a lot about the kind of direction they want to go with the person that they choose, but that still seems that is still it so far um, ahead right now. How do you like dealing with candidates who say they're not running for president and they tell you that to your face, but then they know, then you know you have a gut instinct and you hear it from everyone that they are? Do you look at them and are just like, really? Or do oh, you just- I never take it seriously. You can't take it seriously because. Very, like, you know, I'm sure there are some senators or several senators who do really have no higher or grander aspiration than being in the Senate. And that's awesome. Like, for example, Mitch McConnell, his his top political goal has always been to be the Senate majority leader and that he has achieved it. And I know a lot of senators who are obviously content on being in the Senate, but a lot of senators do wake up and look at themselves in the mirror and see a potential president. So if you hear names floated and they deny it or they have, they go pretty, you know, Sherman-esque and rule it out, like, just don't buy it. I don't buy it for a second. I think Kirsten Gillibrand is a great example. When before the, before she, um, she was reelected uh, last Tuesday, she was saying, I will serve out my six-year term. And then literally, like, one or two days after, she's saying, like, I'm, you know, taking the presidency, uh, taking a hard look at the presidency. Um, and, and I don't, and I don't get that from her perspective, Sungmin, because I live in New York. I don't think anybody would have not voted for her if she just said, yeah, I'm not sure if I could serve exactly. that. Like, she, I don't even know the guy running against her or the woman running against her for Senate. I mean, that race was so sleepy that it couldn't be more sleepy. 
Yeah, and it's also she was never she was never going to lose, um, especially if she had said that. And I think Elizabeth Warren has been a little bit more upfront about her intentions. But that's why you know we can't again like we can't take it seriously. I actually remember um, we and my. I remember coverage of, you know, President or then Senator Obama in like 04 and 05 reading like the front pages of the Chicago Tribune saying he would not, you know, like by no means or, you know, this was after he was in the Senate. So it was like in 06 and 07 that, you know, he's he's not thinking about this yet. Like he is not running for the president. And then look at, you know, like he ran, he won, he served two terms. So you just like as a political reporter, you just never, ever, ever believe um, <laughs> these senators or other officials when they say they're not thinking about um, running, running for president because they almost certainly are. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Flake, Profile and Courage, is shutting it all down in the last couple of weeks that he's got in the Senate unless Robert Mueller is protected. You think any it's legislation will pass to get Mueller protected or no? Well, you have to listen to Mitch McConnell over and over again, and he is confident, at least publicly confident, that he believes Trump is not going to do anything to interfere with the Mueller probe. But making life complicated for people like McConnell, who keeps saying that in public, is that the president just keeps angrily tweeting over and over about the Mueller investigation and what is coming. Um, so how far Jeff Flake can actually go in this effort, we'll see. Obviously, him holding up the nominees in the Judiciary Committee is a big deal, and it is a big pain for Republicans who want to get as many confirmed uh, by the end of the year. Even if they're keeping the majority, it's just easier to get these people installed so they can move on to a whole new batch of judges when they have a bigger majority bigger majority in um, January. But um, Flake is feel is with is all the developments at the Justice Department, with Sessions being Sessions essentially being canned and having Matt Whitaker in the in its in its place and kind of at this point when it seems like we're nearing the end of the Mueller probe, I think there really is this growing concern from, you know, Republicans like Flake. We'll see how long it holds. Well, we'll see how long he holds out. Do you have a special ringtone for when Trump tweets or someone is fired? Because I feel like you have to be on alert at all times because you're following him. So the most unfortunate part about joining the Washington Post Amazing White House team is that finally I had to turn on the Twitter notifications on my phone for Donald Trump. And that buzzes a lot. 4 a.m. buzzing. I'm sure I'm sure your husband loves yeah, that, right? 4 a.m. Exactly. when he starts tweeting. At 6 a.m. I mean, my husband is like, what is happening? I was like, he's tweeting again. <laughs> uh, luckily, we have a wonderful morning uh, news crew that can catch a lot of these tweets um, in, the, in the early a.m. But it is amazing to see how just the entire Washington is just dictated by what comes out of his Twitter account. Look, reporters are by no means the only people who have Donald Trump's, you know, notifications set on their phones. I know senators you have, so they can be up to date on whatever they get, whatever they may get asked about, you know, Trump's latest tweet from us in the hallways. Um, and it's really changed, you know, like, I don't know how you, I, I don't know what it's going to be like after Trump once, when he eventually leaves office of how his his successor is going to communicate. He's really changed everything on that front, um, and we're just so used to being tied to this next buzz or whatever might sound my... That, that is actually, I, I got to tell you, as, as yeah. again, as a former Senate staffer, that is just amazing that a co-equal branch of government has... <laughs> that members of a co-equal branch of government literally have to worry about somebody tweeting something out because they have to either take direction or comment on it or worry about it. It's just uh, exactly. a, a very different time in our lives. Um, Indeed. <laughs> uh, Sungmin Kim, Washington Post reporter, CNN political analyst. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thanks for having me. 
And next time we see you in real life, I can't promise you love beer from Charlottesville because I'm not sure if they can import that into New York, but I will buy you whatever disgusting beer <laughs> is sold at some divey <laughs> bar in New York, I promise. All right, thank you so much. It's the plan. <laughs> take care. Bye. All right, take care. Bye. That was an incredible interview. Sungmin Kim of the Washington Post, um, just an amazing reporter. She worked on um, immigration at Politico for many, many years, one of the first people, I think, to really see the trend of what was coming with immigration on both sides of the aisle and, and the um, huge rifts that you see um, along partisan lines, but not even along partisan lines, um, along regional lines and other lines. Um, and she took that reporting to the Washington Post and uh, is now covering the president, which is, she's just a fantastic reporter. I've known her a long time and I cannot say to CNN um, enough that they made just a, such a smart decision bringing her on board as a political analyst because she doesn't have an ax to grind. She's not partisan at all. Um, she just calls it like she sees it and, and she really never brings her own personal views, which as I said, I don't know what they are. For all I know, she's a complete well, diehard Trumpist and I'd, I'd never know that and I'm good friends with her. That's what I thought was interesting when you brought up your conversation with her at Yale when you guys were talking about media bias and just you got laughs then. I wonder if that same question came up now. We'd probably be run out of New Haven on a rail. Um, and we almost were, and that was almost a decade ago. Um, so I can only imagine what it's like now if we had, we had said the same thing. Ironically enough, we never were asked to return. So that may be why. Anyway, what makes you salty this week? Oh, what's making me salty is still Florida and the idea of voter fraud. I just been two weeks. You're still salty about that. I'm still salty because I'm from there and it just, people can still make fun of me. They're like, oh, it's your state. It's like, yes, I know it's my state. But also I think, a, I think if I can get a receipt for buying a pack of gum, I should get a receipt for voting. I think that could solve a lot of issues. <laughs> yeah. You know what's making me salty? And again, this is the president's tweeting. God knows whether he knows what he's talking about or not. But this is what he tweeted out um, in the wee hours um, of this. Actually, no, it wasn't the wee hours. I guess it was the wee um, hours of this afternoon. Um, he said, quote, the inner workings of the Mueller investigation are a total mess. And then he proceeded to have several more tweets excoriating Robert Mueller, which makes me think somebody's about to get indicted. But um, the inner workings of the Mueller investigation are a total mess. So either he's making it up because he has no idea about the inner workings of the Mueller investigation, in which case that's just a lie. Or more troublingly, he's telling the truth, in which case, how would he know about the inner workings of the Mueller investigation? He's a potential subject or target of the investigation. I don't know if he is or not. Certainly, um, people very close to him have been indicted, and, and others may be. Um, there is some speculation that his son, Donald Trump Jr., um, is a target of the investigation. His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, uh, may be as well. We don't know. Um, I don't know. But it's troubling to me that he claims he does know about the inner workings. And is it that instinct that it's, he's got? Yeah, it's that instinct that made him such a successful businessman. That's true. Or maybe Matt Whitaker is reporting to him about what's going on or, or, or maybe somebody else's. And that to me is really troubling because he really should not know about the inner workings of the Mueller investigation about that. And what's troubling to me is not so much this individual thing, but it kind of ties into your, Emily, to your point about Florida and about the fact that you have Rick Scott saying there's voter fraud being committed without any evidence at all. Um, this country really relies on its institutions to get us through upheaval. And the institutions typically stay strong regardless of what kind of presidency we have. And to have um, politicians cast doubt about the integrity of the electoral process without any evidence, or to cast doubt about the integrity of a criminal justice probe or a Justice Department probe or a Southern District of New York probe, um, 
without any evidence really, I think, does a massive disservice to the institutions that this country relies on long after those politicians are gone. I mean, Rick Scott may or may not become a senator. Chances are he probably will. That picture will. would be super embarrassing. Yeah, he probably will, right. Um, Donald Trump, eventually, whether it's two years from now or six years from now, will, will no longer be president. But the damage that I think these kinds of statements do um, to the institutions of our government are really not healthy, and that's not a partisan analysis. That is um, a, I, I think just, I'm speaking really as an American who really respects our form of government and the institutions that this government's built on. And the crazy conspiracy theories, I think, just do a massive disservice. And I, it's one thing to have them happen on the web, or it's one thing you read about them on Twitter, but to have them come from the governor of a state, as, as you said, makes you salty for the last two weeks, and I understand why. Or to have them come from the president of the United States is really kind of awful. Um, I don't think there's massive fraud going on in Florida, or if there is, I, I haven't seen any evidence of it. Um, and please don't tweet me that you know about evidence that doesn't exist unless you can prove to me that it actually exists. Um, same thing here. I mean, I don't know whether the Mueller investigation is a mess. I also know that the president shouldn't know whether it's a mess or not. He doesn't should not know about the inner workings of it. Um, that's a Justice Department investigation, and to have the president of all people cast aspersions upon the Justice Department really is incredibly demoralizing for those men and women in the Justice Department who will be working there long after he's gone. A that, woman. That's my two cents. Okay. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We will catch you next week. Happy Thanksgiving. All righty.